So we are continuing looking at why speech found a lovely short arc article by Rick Hansen uh, on why speech has started with the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And then he very wisely comments, uh, not really. We know the words we say to each other, we hear from each other, and the tone that, they, that these words can be delivered can do lasting damage. It's really interesting to me how disconnected we Westerners can be from our bodies that is actually surprising to us to find out that the emotional pain networks, as Rick Hansen points out in this article, overlap with the physical pain networks. You know, we didn't need neuroscience to tell us this. If someone delivers that verbal blow, it physically hurts. But now, you know, we have this, this uh, science to back that up, that, that that sense of a physical pain with the emotional blows is for real. And they've actually done studies that show um, the intertwining of these goes both ways. For example, there are studies that show uh, people re receiving social support actually reduces the perceived intensity of physical pain. And this is the one that I, I, would, I hadn't heard before, uh, that giving people Tylenol actually reduces the unpleasantness of social rejection. So, you know, these places are very interwoven in us. This conversation around why speech, right speech, is so relevant in a world of such pain, intense pain, from our verbal barrage of each other in not just the massive big ways that we're experimenting with as a culture right now, but in the little, the little ways that we don't pay attention as well. There are a lot of beautiful models looking at communication now. The one I've drawn from uh, repeatedly and offered here is nonviolent communication which is slowly morphing through a lot of people's works into mindful communication. Orrin Sofer is a wonderful sort of leader of that movement. What I want to share today are the traditional teachings from the Buddha. Uh, we're looking at this in this context of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And it's kind of beautiful to hear teachings 2,600 years old about the importance of how we show up and care for each other through our words. There's actually a lot from the Buddha around right speech in the, in the Pali Canon. I'm just going to center on two of them. The first one's called the Four Abstentions. This is one of the most common ones taught, 
And this says, uh, the Buddha apparently said, what is right speech? Abstaining from lying, from divisive speech, from abusive speech, and from idle chatter. This is called right speech. Love an article from Beth Roth. I uh, referenced it last week and put the link to it on the podcast if you're interested. Well worth finding that article. She updates the languaging of, of that and says, this means not lying, not using speech in a way that creates discord among people, not using swear words or a cynical, hostile, or raised tone of voice, and not engaging in gossip. Reframed in the positive, these guidelines urge us to say only what is true, to speak in ways that promote harmony among people, to use a tone of voice that's pleasing, kind, and gentle, and to speak mindfully in order that our speech is useful and purposeful. That's a tall order particularly in a culture that is thriving on the quick comeback, on the sarcastic humorous, um, sarcastic humor, on the takedown. You know, we are, we are like really living in a glorification of a takedown culture at the moment. And I don't think it's that hard to get most people to agree that there is harm, <laughs> most people agree, we don't seem to be agreeing on this at the moment, actually, harm in line. Um, uh, interesting to, to notice where, where these fall for you, harm in line, harm in hostile speech. Fairly easy to pinpoint if you're looking at this path of how do we how do we support ourselves and each other? Fairly easy to pinpoint the harm in that. Doesn't mean it's easy to put a stop to our own use of that by any means. But what about sarcasm as humor? I just can say for my own self, when I first started hearing this teaching, you know, I could have the, the quick sarcastic remark come out uh, as easily as anyone else. And I began to watch my own use of sarcasm. It became really clear that it often was a sort of disguise of a, a sort of irritated or aversive state. You know, maybe even had nothing to do with the person I was talking to, but I was living with a kind of tension that, that um, you know, the, the little sarcastic remark um, might be a, a release valve for, uh, to cover up the, the anger, the irritation, the frustration, the little, the little nagging brew going on in the background that's often there. Once I could see that, then it really did become a practice. It's a continuing practice for me to, to watch when I revert to sarcasm. The other thing about sarcasm is so easy for it to be misunderstood. 
So I invite you to pay attention to when it comes out of your mouth. You know, what's going on? What's the underlying tone in the body, mind, and heart when it's there? And is it useful as part of your practice or your deeper intention for care for yourself? The other one, gossip. I remember when I very first heard this, this teaching on uh, part of the practice is to not engage in idle chatter about others, i.e. gossip. I had this very clear, distinct thought. Well, at least I don't do that. <laughs> you know, I don't gossip. And then once I said that, I started to hear how so many of the conversations I had with others were basic gossip about other people. Uh, it, and it seemed innocuous, you know, it was residents being in, in medical training, being a resident with other residents. We would talk about our attendings. You know, we would talk about the chief resident uh, and to start to recognize that there was a flavor of that that, that I no longer felt comfortable with in the same way. Very slippery for conversations around others to not slide into idle chatter about others in a way that's actually gossip. What I'm aware of now when I still slip, which of course I do. I mean, I slip in all of these. There's, this is a practice. This isn't a once and done. Oh, I shouldn't gossip. I'll never do it again. Um, I should never, I, I, oh, lying. It's, it's problematic. So I won't ever lie again. You know, it doesn't work that way. It really is a practice to get clearer and clearer about knowing what's actually forming in the body, mind, heart, and being uh, delivered out of the mouth and catching it before it comes out. Because that, that act of from, from conception to delivery can happen so fast that it really is a practice to figure out how to catch it. When I do catch it, it's very interesting if I pay attention to what happens in my body. The information is there. It doesn't feel good. If I really pay, even if I like deliver that, that supposed fun, sarcastic zinger that, that maybe we have a laugh over, there is something in my body that's like, oh, that was a little off. And I'm better and better at catching that. Oy. And I don't want to cause pain to myself. I don't actually enjoy self-inflicted pain. And I'm recognizing that little, that little twinge is a form of self-inflicted pain that I don't want. So the paying attention to it is the teacher. Not, it's not about perfection practice. It's about learning to pay attention and allow the moment not to be a moment of self-judgment or denigration, but a moment of learning and gratitude for the learning that I have available for me in that moment. The second traditional teaching I want to share, I really appreciate that this is here, which is very clear on, well, what about when what we need to say is the hard thing? 
when it won't be pleasing, pleasing or endearing to hear. The Buddha very clearly knew that there were times that we would need to say things that were difficult and that there is a way to say the difficult things that's useful and beneficial. So the, the basic teaching is about establishing five conditions within ourselves when we need to name the difficult hard thing. And the five conditions are, do I speak at the right time or not? Do I speak of facts or not? Do I speak gently or harshly? Do I speak profitable words or not? Do I speak with a kindly heart or inwardly malicious? These five conditions are to be investigated and established by one who desires to admonish another. Rick Hansen in his article refers to these five as well and his translation into more modern language is what I'm saying, well-intended. Does it come from goodwill, not ill will? Is it constructive? Is it aimed to build up and not tear down? Is it true? It's not overstated, not taken out of context or blown up out of proportion. Is it beneficial? Is it actually, is it actually designed to help things get better, not worse, even if that takes a long while? Is it timely, not driven by impulsivity? Does it rest on a foundation that creates a good chance of it truly being heard? That was one, there's nothing like having a teenager for learning the importance of the timeliness of saying things. There is a time I could say a certain sentence and have it blow up in my face. And there was the time I could say the exact same sentence and it would be heard. It's just wise <laughs> to learn which, when is the time that something can be heard? And then is it not harsh? It can be firm, pointed, or intense. It can confront mistreatment or injustice. Anger can be acknowledged, but it is not prosecute. I can't say this word. Prosecutor. Somebody say it for me. Prosecutor. Okay. Does it prosecute? How's that? <laughs> Thank you. Say it one more time, Diane. Linda. Prosecutorial. Oh, Linda. Thank you. Prosecutorial. Uh, not nasty, inflammatory, dismissive, disdainful, or snarky. Those are good. Admosh, admin, I can't pronounce anything today. Admonitions. Good warnings to keep in mind about how, how to speak what needs to be said. There's one last caveat of that. There's a lot on that teaching that I'm not going to share, but one last caveat. The Buddha went through all of these, the various combinations of when you should speak and when not to. And the one that I really appreciate that is named and passed down 
uh, and you have to know the name, the Tathagata. That's what the Buddha referred to himself in teachings. Um, so the, the, the combination of these, of when to speak them and when not to, uh, is said this way. In the case of words that the Tathagata knows to be factually, factual, true, beneficial, but unendearing and disagreeable to others. He has a sense of the proper time for saying them. So it's never about put a pretty smile on things and only say kind, um, um, cheerful words by any means. It's more about how we say things in a way that we're promoting healing in the world as opposed to destruction. This is knowing when to stand up, how to stand up to name the pain that someone's causing is knowing how to set healthy boundaries around hurtful behaviors and how to consider appropriate questions to make sure that my delivery is as effective as possible. I remember a beautiful example of this in the first time I sat uh, in, in a uh, gathering with Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, it was a couple of months after 9-11 and he spoke in Boston, a room of about 2,000 people, a powerful, powerful gathering. After he spoke, he invited people to come up and ask questions. And one young man came up and in clearly a lot of pain, said to him that he was so hurt and angry and frustrated with his girlfriend because he gave her everything. He loved her totally. He showed up for her in every way. And, he didn't, and she wasn't returning the love to him. There was a way that Ty set with what the man said that felt like a deep, compassionate acknowledgement of the pain the young man was feeling. And then in this very quiet, very gentle, very powerful way, he redirected the young man to examine if his actions were really about love or were his actions about wanting to possess, wanting to give and get back what he wanted in return, as opposed to an unconditional offering without expectation that was a part. It was a very hard truth that he spoke to this, this man, but he did it in a way that was clearly compassionate, non-angry, no calling out of the man whatsoever, and gave clear suggestions for how this man could, this young man could practice with compassion for his own self that was confused about what true love might look like and how to get that need met. It was a beautiful, beautiful example of how to say the hard thing with tremendous care. So I'm gonna stop here and just remind one more time the quote I ended with last time, a quote that stayed with me ever since I heard it. 
from John Travis about how to make this into a practice. The practice is, can I stay in my body and speak from my heart? And of course, the speaking was always paired with the listening. Can I stay in my body and listen with my heart? So let's just pause here for a minute. It's one place in your own life that you want to explore deeper, a practice of wise speech. Is it maybe something with sarcasm or gossip or a particular relationship? See if you can hone in on one spot to bring care and tenderness. Learning a habit of speech is a compassionate relationship for you and others. Thank you.